One of the trends we've seen too is there's a leadership split. I'm running into leaders that I can be like, okay, you clearly have a mobile background. And I'm running into leaders who I'm like, okay, you clearly have like a traditional AAA background or you have a console background or whatever. And difference in the way that they see the world. One of the things we both observed is that there seems to be a lot of force pushing us back towards the defined. It's so interesting to see that anxiety to like make stuff and make it real what we call like a very Taylorist perspective. We need to get those assembly lines and those machines cranking, and that creates some emotional and psychological security for us. What's the conflict happening across game dev right now, and what's at the source of it? How has the game industry changed in the last couple of years, and where is it going? What's causing all the layoffs and economic strife, and how did we get here? Today, we're going to be looking at game dev. Yep, the whole thing. We'll be discussing the broad trends we see and how a variety of factors, economic and otherwise, have led us to a place where the way things are in game dev is just not the way things are anymore, with a future that looks even wilder. You're listening to Building Better Games, where we show industry leaders a better way to make games that players love. Your hosts are Benjamin Carsage and Aaron Smith. We've spent over a decade shipping some of the biggest games in the world. We've also helped game studios around the world improve their approach to building great games. Our mission is simple, help you ship better games with less work and fight back against the dysfunctional systems that frustrate studios around the world. You know, Ben and I had a, a rousing conversation a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of content creation. We do a lot of podcasts, we write a lot of newsletters. And one of the interesting pieces of feedback we've got is, I think in various forms, the feedback is essentially like, hey, thanks for walking me through how to build a better roadmap. Thanks for uh, giving me some leadership advice. Um, I can't do any of that stuff at my company. Um, or what What do I do if I can't do any of that stuff at my company? And it, as we talked about that feedback, you know, tactically, it's just like, okay, well, what's going on with that person, right? Are they at a studio where the leadership's not receptive? Are they feeling limited in their mindset? Um, and as Ben and I talked about it more, the conversation expanded to become an industry-wide conversation. And, and I had sort of asked the question, are we at times naive in the way that we communicate to our audience? Uh, for example, we tend to have a pretty positive, forward-looking, you-can-do-it kind of spin to our content. And I've had a couple people who, like whose feedback I'm grateful for pull me aside and say, hey, I don't think that you realize that th this is really bad for a lot of people. And I don't know if you realize that because of your background at companies like Riot, where you had a lot of agency and you had a good culture and you had all this stuff, you might be somewhat ignorant to the reality of the majority of people working in game development. And so Ben and I talked about like what that meant how we wanted to internalize that feedback, um, ask ourselves honestly if we were really connecting with people, like if we were really being compassionate, if we really understood, or we were just kind of blowing smoke up people's asses because you know we wanted to give you the five steps you can do to create better accountability at your organization or whatever it was. And, and the conversation became really interesting. And as we talked more about it, it it, the conversation took on more of a strategic twist 
in the sense that we were talking about the industry at large. Uh, we were talking about yeah. big trends. Um, you know, an example is we've done a lot of consulting work with many studios at this point, and we've certainly seen some patterns. And some we touch on them in this podcast from time to time, but what are those trends and what is the reality? Um, so we kind of wanted to take a step back and do like a state of the union, especially since it's the beginning of the year and a lot of people are feeling rather reflective. You know, there's a lot of frustration because we're already like aggressively outpacing the rate of layoffs this year so far that we even came close to last year. And so, um, you know, setting the stage there, we wanted to talk about that. And we wanted to, and our thoughts today are probably going to be a little bit more macro than you're used to. Yeah. There's a, there's this big picture lens. Um, I mean, even my mom, my, I was talking to my mom on the phone and she brought up like, oh, games industry. I heard that there was like a big hiring thing when COVID happened. And then, you know, it's going down now. And how's that affecting you and things like that? Um, and I actually, you know, went into some of the reasons that I see um, for that, the expansion and then the the more recent shrinking um, of the industry and, and kind of how I viewed it going forward. But there's so much wrapped up into this. And while there is this outcome, I don't say while there is, there is an outcome for this at the individual leader level, like what you're asked to do and what you're the expectations your boss has for you are, all of that ladders up in some way in this direction and changes at those macro level in terms of what we value, what we're focusing on, what we're thinking about, like what leaders we think are respectable or valuable or can help you save your company or create an amazing game. Who those leaders are, the shape that they have are all impacted by some of these broad, broad trends. So I'm... I'm kind of curious, like we, we, we were spitballing a little bit about what we wanted to dive into here, but where do you want to start on this? Cause part of me like, is like, oh, we could talk about some of the economic, like big picture things or some of the changes in the industry. We could also, you know, dive more into, uh, some of the more local to studios experiences that we've had. Like, where do you want to go? You know, one, one thing, um, you know, that other people have spoken about ad nauseum and I don't think we need to, but we can at least kick it off with this is we can talk about mobile. Um, because mobile is something, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, Ben, but, you know, both of us come from a PC gaming background as gamers and as, uh, developers. Yeah. I was, I was like console, console PC. All yeah. Up. And, um, so mobile is something I've almost had to like learn about very intentionally as I've never worked directly in mobile devel development prior to us going and doing some work with mobile studios. Um, but you know, mobile now is I think around 60% or, or something or like averages out somewhere Wait. around like 50 or 60% of the total revenue of games. It's, it's yeah. a massive it's, chunk. It's huge. Yeah. It's, it's not, um, you can't talk about games without talking about mobile and, and, you know, some of our, um, our fellow content creators that like De deconstructor of fun and, and things like that are, are very mobile focused. And you can see that a lot of the economic narrative around games is a mobile focused narrative just by, by nature. Um, and you know, now you have interesting trends like, you know, well, this person did really well at Zynga running mobile games and now they're hired as a person at Blizzard or a person at Riot. And so there's a lot of this like crossover now, but I think, you know, what I'm getting at is there's a lot of mobile influence there 
and and the way the way that mobile has gone um has in has influenced a lot of the way the industry is perceived and the way the industry perceives itself so that that's just worth noting and i think mobile has been upended actually quite a bit more than the rest of the industry has in the last couple of years yeah well and, and that the uh the changes in policy, like IDFA stuff and AID stuff, like the, the Apple and Google, uh, how they changed, how, I don't know all the specific details. You could go somewhere else for that, but how they shifted basically how you were able to acquire users through advertising revenue, um, really shifted a lot of, uh, how mobile studios were working. I saw a bunch of posts where people were like, well, this is how you, you know, can still be successful in all this different stuff. But there was definitely a reality where, this changed how we thought about bringing players to our games. Um, and it went from something that was more predictable to something that was less predictable. And you, you said earlier uh, in our conversation, you said like there's more of a winner take all kind of thing that starts happening uh, in, in that broad world. Tell me more um, about what you mean when you say it went from more predictable to less predictable. When, when I, I'm thinking about this idea of, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to overstate this. There was this focus on monetization and the idea that if I spend, like if I find a game or build a game that I can plug in to this broad system then I spend X amount of money on user acquisition. Like I spend 250 on user acquisition and that gives me 450 in player revenue up to a certain scale, right? Until I've sort of saturated market. And so all I need to do is keep finding a game that kind of plugs in and what that game, what the games were was somewhat known and you'd like switch IP or develop whatever it was. You, you, it's, I think I'm oversimplifying by saying it was plug and play, but the, the focus was a lot more on. It was certainly more plug and play than the systems we had previous to that. Yeah, exactly. Like way more plug and play than that. And, and if you compare it, um, it was like, Hey, let's plug a game into the end of this, make sure it has the right monetization, uh, systems inside of it that are pretty well known. And all we need to do is just like shove money at, at user acquisition and we end up with the users we need to make the money we need to make a successful game. And then you just kind of repeated that, right? And by the way, this a similar thing absolutely happens in the PC gaming world, but it's through the lens of like sequels, right? You make Assassin's Creed and Assassin's Creed works. And so you make Assassin's Creed 2 and you change some things, but broadly that game is the same. And yeah, you had to record new lines and it took a lot of time and there were new systems you built. But it's broadly like if I played an Assassin's Creed game and I went into isometric camera and started having to like maneuver units around, I'd be super confused, right? I know what Assassin's Creed is. I know how it's supposed to work. And Ubisoft continues to create Assassin's Creed games. What they're doing there though is not like completely new game development. They're creating sequels. And in the mobile space, I think what that looked like was we have this system that uh, takes advertising dollars and turns it into more player spend. And all we just need to do is like keep the games coming in, right? Like build the game, yeah. ship the game, build Cer the game, ship the game. Certainly for the first I mean, time we've been able like, to like create a flow that is understandable and somewhat formulaic where we can see what the impact is of 
strategy going in and money coming out, right? Which is, which I agree is that's something I feel like that was relatively new that came along with mobile games. Yes. And I feel like, so in the last 10, 15 years, that's developed a lot. And by the way, Eastern market, huge in that space in the sort of bring people in kind of, uh, <laughs> it, it sounds so brutal, but like it's business, right? You extract wealth from those people and then like move on to the next game and, and kind of repeat that cycle over and over and over. Um, and and IDFA and some other like changes, the changes in policy shifted how players related or sorry, how studios related to advertising. Yeah, it broke some of their the certainty of their formulas. And so exactly. actually like I, they had a system and stuff, stuff snapped. Yeah. Coming full circle. It sounds like you're saying that those trends made game development and the outcomes of game development more predictable than we were than we were used to. And, and it's interesting because. Um, and the change now makes it less predictable yeah. and you see the decline, yeah. the relative decline in mobile yeah. as a percentage of the whole thing. Yeah. And it, it's it's interesting because one of the trends we've seen, too, is um, there is a there's a leadership split uh, and, and split sounds like an aggressive word because it implies that there's like division between those groups of people. Uh, I don't mean that. What I'm saying, though, is that I, I'm running into leaders that I can be like, OK, you clearly have a mobile background and I'm running into leaders who I'm like, OK, you clearly have like a traditional AAA background or you have a console background or whatever. And, and, and a difference in the way that they see the world. And it may be the case that this has been spoken about ad nauseum, but I haven't run into it a lot. Are we able to rectify those two worlds, like, do we share a set of criteria, a shared definition of things? Um, like even the term game, just saying, so, what is a game? Like, is a casino, is a slot machine game a game? Is Assassin's Creed a game? Is it, is it do you have to be like a AAA game like Assassin's Creed to be considered a game? You know, there's arguments about this stuff. And, and again, what I think is interesting is that the industry has expanded to be large enough and cover so many different verticals now that it's like you don't know what these things mean anymore. Um, and a lot of people are just like, well, obviously the stuff I make is games and a lot of what these other people make is not. Um, one practical example I see is um, when it comes to those running the product, like by profession, the disciplines that are are making product calls, making prioritization calls, um, I tend to often find myself making assumptions about what those people do and how they see the world and, and that being proven wrong. A great example of that is, is like when I run into leaders that are sort of like, quote unquote, product people from mobile background or from like publishing backgrounds, um, they tend to see the world more in terms of like, the formulaic way, like how do I put in five variables and, and, and get out n revenue number that is acceptable? Um, There's like a monetization metrics kind exactly. of frame on it. Again, not wrong. And it actually was hyper effective. Yeah. And when I see people doing products from a more AAA perspective, perhaps, or a more traditional game development perspective, whatever you want to call it, they tend to think more about um, resonance and impact and engagement and these kinds of things. Um, and then 
the, 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 the revenue numbers end up being abstracted away from that to a degree or handled by somebody else in publishing or who makes predictions and things like that. But it's, but it's interesting to note, I hear somebody who's like, oh, I'm a product manager. And I'm like, okay, cool. So you can prioritize this team's backlog. And they're like, not really. Um, I'm just going to tell you, um, I'll look at your feature list and tell you which ones are likely to have the biggest impact on revenue. But, um, and, and I'll be, I'm, I'm crunching all the numbers in the spreadsheet to figure out how we need to do UA and uh, how, you know, like how, what we need to meet our financial goals for our publisher or whatever it is. And, and I'm not used as a guy from more of a traditional background, I'm not used to that as much. Um, but that's the kind of stuff you're seeing. It's like, we're not, um, like a lot of that homogeneity is gone now. You can't necessarily make assumptions about what it means to lead or what people's roles are, um, things like that. Yeah. So, so I think, um, going back to the very beginning, we said, Hey, there, there absolutely was some kind of expansion in our industry around the pandemic and a, and a, a shrinking post, um, whether that was just COVID or not, we would deny. There's the second thing, which is mobile and the way we thought about mobile, the percentage of the market that was mobile has been impacted in a way that mobile is needing to respond to and react to. And that's, uh, causing some challenges there. Um, I think as I, as I keep going through sort of the list, another one, uh, there, there's an obvious one, and this is also related to the general state of the economy and interest rates and all these different things, which is the amount of investment capital flowing into the space of game dev has gone down significantly. Um, there's just less money coming in, uh, and that's leading to closure of a lot of small studios. Um, and and I, I even saw someone write something, uh, Brett, Brett Novak, I think is his name. Um, he wrote an idea that was, hey, the players, the reduction in player spend isn't necessarily, you know, COVID related where, oh, people are going back and they're like doing stuff outside and with people and all this stuff. So they're not spending as much on games. He was actually connecting it. Is there a, a, a line you can draw even indirectly to the idea that as the economy has shifted, so to have spending habits for everybody across the board. And it's less about people playing less games and it's more about those broad adjustments and economic factors in a lot of the Western world as people respond to like changing prices and all this different stuff. Um, and and I, I actually, yeah, it was a really, it was really cool. Maybe I'll find that link and also we can put that in the show notes. What's so interesting. There's, so there's that piece as well. Yeah. What's interesting about that, those discussions to me is uh, I find myself being less interested about the sort of macroeconomic analysis and like, well, why does it seem like we have less money? And I'm more interested in like the impact that that seems to be having on our decision making. Because like you and I have talked a lot about this. And one of the things Ben and I have observed, which is kind of a scary observation, is that we see studios like, you know, one of the ways Ben and I often describe the world is as a, uh, a spectrum between what we call defined work and empirical work. And uh, for a lot of people, you'll identify pieces of this conversation as like, oh, that sounds like agile or that sounds like iterative development, or that sounds like a factory, or that sounds like waterfall. We're less interested in the labels and the terminology and the tactics around this, and more about uh, identifying where we wanna be on that spectrum, depending on the situation we're in. And as a general rule, Ben and I would say, 
that we're we are trending much more on the empirical side as a general rule when we're making where when we're in creative development. And one of the things we both observed is that um, there seems to be a lot of force pushing us back towards the defined. And, and I think that is interesting to me. So like back to Ben's point about money drying up, you know, that creates stress, that creates the feeling from investors that they need more guarantees around their money when they put in money. And so when I need more guarantees, it forces you to have clearer answers to questions that maybe you actually don't know the answer to. And so it forces definition. And uh, we see leaders almost interestingly enough, almost like reverting their behavior back to like older management methods that uh, are more indicative of 20 years ago than they are today. Um, there's and a lot of it's under the guise of like, it's brass tacks. We have to get stuff done. It's the year of execution. Like we hear a lot of these kinds of lines from leadership and Ben and I are sitting there and going like, you cannot work your way out of this problem. And, and, and I, I want to be clear to, to articulate that we're not saying that hard work isn't of major importance. What we're saying is, pardon me. Um, what we're saying is that uh, you can't not work your way out of uncertainty. It's not possible. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of studios actually trying. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the rush to production, for example, like why is it that a small studio, as soon as they get their fingers on a $5 million check or a $10 million check from a VC, their first thought is like, well, obviously we need to hire 40 people and like, we need to aggressively expand our work throughput. And um, maybe they don't even have a prototype yet. Maybe they don't have a clear thesis. Maybe they don't have a direction. Maybe they don't have alignment within their leadership team from a roles and responsibilities perspective. Maybe they don't have a culture uh, or, or that, that they've created or gotten aligned on. And, and it's, it's so interesting to see that anxiety to like make stuff and make it real. And that's another one of those things that it's like, it's a very, what we call like a very tailorist perspective. It's like we need to get those assembly lines and those machines cranking. And that creates some emotional and psychological security for us. And, and one of the things I've noticed, Ben, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this is like, I think that that's a natural place to go when you're under stress, actually. Um, and so I think that now that our industry is under a lot more stress than it was three years ago, that I, that's a, that's a, a knee jerk, a popular knee jerk reaction is to be like, I'm going to lock everything down. We want to take a quick break from the podcast. There's no shortage of challenges in game development and leaders are often attempting to solve huge problems without the support, direction, or mentorship they need. It leads to stress, anxiety, and even feelings of isolation. We've been that leader feeling out in a limb with no help and we wish that on no one. Because of this, Aaron and I are offering focused short-term coaching for the challenges you are facing. We'll spend time with you every week to help you understand and overcome what's in your way. If you've got problems and want help from coaches who have spent real time leading game development, check out the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click coaching. Thanks. Let's get back into it. I, I think you're spot on. When we're stressed, we want to lock it down. We want to have the certainty so that we can feel confident in the direction we're going because that'll help relieve our stress. And again, I think something we've talked about a lot is that idea of I'm willing to even deny reality to pretend that I know what's going on so that I don't have to experience as much, much stress because at least everybody's working and at least we're moving towards something. I, I wanted to also touch on this idea of, um, you know, let's say you're, you're, you were a startup and a couple of years ago, you got $30 million. 
that you kind of just describe this. There's this temptation to go, how do I set up a $30 million studio? And you're thinking about it through a scale and organization lens and like, what's a $30 million game and all this. And we know of a founder who got a large chunk of money and instead said, this isn't one game, this is multiple games. Yeah, I'm gonna build I'm gonna three take- $10 million games. Exactly, right? I got $30 million, I'm gonna build three $10 million games. And- um, Which is super unusual. And I think yes, it's, and it, that and it was that you had to go through that choice. You had to go, hang on just a second. Let's slow down and say, what can we do with this that's most likely to cause us to be successful? And it may not be dumping everything into one idea, where that's what most startups are almost built around is this idea of as much money as I get, I'm going to make the biggest best. It's almost like a a Kickstarter, right? The more VC that comes in, the more bonuses we can put on the product we're making, but what his approach was, how can I make a set of different products to maximize my chance of success? And there was another part of that, that he, he was talking to us about that I thought was just fascinating, which is if you were a startup and it was, you know, 2019 to 2021 and money was flowing fast and free and you got a lot of money and you were just really excited and you started building this big thing. You almost put yourself in a situation as your seed round and your series A and your series B came in where if you weren't one of the most successful games of the year, you were going to be a failure. You could make a great game, but if it wasn't like one of the top three games of that year, you weren't going to make the money back. No one was going to win from this. And so you almost felt again, that stress and that need to go like, well, I need to build the organization that can build one of the top three games of the year. I can't possibly do anything else. And while all these studios are trying to figure that out and going like, well, I got $80 million or I got $120 million, right? And in VC capital, I need to make something huge. You have, you know, $7 million going into Power World. You have Lethal Company being built by one person. You have little games like Across the Obelisk that has three developers or Battlebit that has three developers and are only later on trying to scale once like they've found product market fit. And they're just these little indie games. Now, again, the, the you know, obviously way more indie games fail than succeed. But there's this idea of like, well, well I, like you said, I need that to build a studio. Very small. Too, exactly. Right? And and, yes. and that impacts sort of risk profile and investment. 100%. And the, you know, there's so much that's interesting here. But again, it's like we're coming back to this idea that it, it bizarrely, the trend seems to be to go more towards defined, like more towards locking things down, more towards like old school roadmaps where things are understood and we know when things are happening. And the work, the work is sequenced, lots of sequencing of work. Uh, like Ben and I have been in several studios now where the work is like highly sequenced, but it, it almost it, it feels like they built this grand assembly line of all this stuff getting done, art assets getting created, engineering work done, team doing this, team having that backlog, stakeholder reviews. This looks good. And then it's like if you looked far enough down the assembly line, it's like all the work was just being dumped into a, a, a the ocean or dumped into a trash dump. Where it's like, and like no one was particularly concerned about how important any of this stuff was, whether it would be used in in the final product versus in the prototype. What did it mean to have a prototype? Were we going to ever look at the thing to see if the game was any good? It was just such an obsession with the machine that created things. And and again, um, 
the what's the ultimate irony of that to me is at a time where we're so strapped on cash, that seems like a big waste of money to me. And and I think that I love your examples of indie developers because they're lean and they know how to save money and and as uh, as our friend you referred to said, take as many shots on goal as possible, right? And as opposed to just like taking. <laughs> taking one $100 million shot per year. Um, and, and so there, there's a lot going on uh, there. We talked about stress. The, the big money influence is something I'd like to talk more about too. Yeah, yeah, let's go into that. But it's like, so, you know, we've talked about, this is not my area of expertise. So if you're listening to this and it is yours, you're gonna have to forgive me. But it looks like there's been a couple of trends from my perspective over the last 10 years. One of them is that like big money is now interested in, in games uh, from an investment perspective. And I think especially- or at least they were in 2021. Yeah, especially <laughs> since when interest rates were low and people were looking for places to take sort of like high opportunity bets, um, even if they were high risk, games seemed like a good place from a lot of people's perspective. Um, I, I often find myself wondering how, like what kind of an impact that has and what the attitude of most of these VCs are and like whether they understand how games are actually made. Um, and that's where, you know, we'd love to hear from you if you have opinions on that. Um, maybe we'll make some, some posts about that in the next couple of weeks and just ask people out of curiosity, what have you seen? Like what trends, what behavioral trends have you seen? Because certainly one of the things that seems interesting and concerning to me is like, and there are a handful of examples in my head from the clients we've worked with of like publishers and VCs, like seemingly having no idea how development looks like when it's going well. Um, insofar as they're able to like guide their teams on the right track to building a great product. Uh, typically what we actually see is um, game developers knowing what the right thing is to do, or perhaps having pretty good instincts about how to iterate to get to a good product, and the VC almost being a counterforce to that, almost being like a uh, incentivizing some not great behaviors because they're holding the purse strings and they want results and they want data and they want to see this and they want to see the hires and they want to see the scaling plan and they want to see all this stuff and. And I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like, uh, the, the, the non-virtuous relationship between those two parties, I feel like results in a lot of wasted money and a lot of wasted time. Yeah. Well, to, to me, there's that, like, what does success mean? And if success means wildly different things to those two parties, it's going to be hard for them. But a lot of the studios that are starting, they're trying to figure out as they pitch, what's the right thing to say to get money? Right. And they, they almost have to go to like school for that. Right. They go read books and they go look at elite game developers and for, with Yokim and like, like they go, they check out, they talk to other people who have gotten money and they're like, what did you do? How did you get anybody interested in your company and all this different stuff? And then you figure out how to put that in. Okay. Got it. So we got to like talk about how great our people are and how the amazing things that they've built and all this different stuff. And there, like you said, there's this system where we're trying to figure out how to present the information in such a way that you'll provide us the resources to allow us to go do what we need to do. Simultaneously, you obviously want to see an ROI on this in some sort of 
not infinite time frame. And so you're trying to make sure that we have the plan that will allow that to happen. But are is that actually working at cross purposes to a successful product? And, and as we try to, you know, as the VCs try to attract the best startups and the startups try to attract the best VCs, are we almost like hiding as much information as we're providing? And I think this doesn't just happen between um, startups with VC money. I think this also happens between studios and publishers um, where there's that same sort of like push pull of, yeah, 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 but I know like the publisher, like, I know you could get a little bit more done. Yeah, well, just keep working harder, right? Don't worry. And the, and there's, there can, from the, from the studio side, it's like, oh, how do I get the publisher to just get off my back about this stuff? And why are they always asking me blah, blah, blah. And there's not this, like, there, there's a failure to understand, hey, we may not share what success looks like, and especially may not share what it looks like to get there, like how we actually walk that path. And so again, that pressure that you were talking about earlier, the push from a creative empirical space towards a defined space, I think is strong uh, in the, in the startup world, in like the small studio with a publisher world. Like there's this, we want to see that it's all working. We want to see the right plans and roadmaps and things in place, the systems that will create the game. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons that mobile at certain times was so appealing because they did kind of have the systems down. You know, and it was like, oh, is this, and and I apologize to be working in mobile. I know this isn't actually how it is and I'm oversimplifying dramatically, but again, think about it from the perspective of investors. Wait, can I just plug in something? So I just pay you a bunch of money and you build a game and then I do this ad spend thing and then I just make a ton of money. Like you print me money. I mean, there's no doubt that 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 as much as I want. There's no doubt that that was attractive. You know what I mean? And there's no, there's no doubt that that brought in a lot of big business and a lot of big business people into the industry. Like to me, you can't argue that. And I think that the, the temptation of that, it scares me a little bit. Um, the way I look at mobile, when we're talking about this subject is I go good for everyone that was able to benefit from that. But those studios, I think are starting to struggle. The big ones that have made a lot of money off that are starting to struggle as they realize that that model may not be as sustainable as they thought. And we've personally witnessed firsthand some of those large mobile studios trying to break in back into the creative, more traditional creative side of game development and really struggling to do it. And I think one of the reasons why actually is because the way that they view the product is through the lens of those frameworks that they've created, where it's like you put good data in and useful financial situation comes out the backside. And it's like, that's actually not how most games work, to be honest. That like to me, that is a, that is an example of, or that is an aspect of mobile development, very specifically in the the type of games we have on mobile. And by the way, if we're going to put like Fallout, you know, versus a casino game on two sides of the spectrum, I feel like most mobile games are more on the side of the spectrum of a casino game with the way that they work and the way that they acquire users and the way that they engage people and the way that they make money and all this stuff. Um, You know, it's, and I, somebody might challenge me on that. Like, I don't want to offend anybody, but well, no, I mean, I, you know, the, the that's, stats that's were something like the, the majority of mobile games were hyper casual or casual in nature. It wasn't the majority of the revenue, interestingly, but yeah. it was the majority of the games produced certainly fall into that 
the hyper casual, because by the way, that's what people want on their phones. And I, I think when I, when I look at this, well, it's um, like in PC, we like players get pissed off about loot boxes, right? Like the, the, the standard for the monetization, what is seen as appropriate monetization behavior from big AAA studios on PC and console is like ruthless. Like a lot of these companies have just been torn to pieces for what is considered to be bad monetization approaches. And those monetization approaches are the standard in mobile games. Well, and that, by the way, even there, you know, you and I have talked before about the difference between Eastern and Western markets. We're like Western markets. That's very true. Eastern, not a big deal. Totally fine. Even in the PC world, although those are much more mobile dominated um, markets generally. And I think all like all that, the, the thing I was thinking about as you were talking about this is there's almost like these, these different archetypes of successful leaders. And we don't have a way to almost describe or talk about them. And one of them is like that product, the monetization focused product thinker in the mobile space, right? Very, very valuable uh, at helping you make your game profitable, more successful, get more users in that sort of thing, right? Great person to have. Very different from someone working at a startup trying to do brand new creative development where there's a completely different set of constraints going on. Yes, you have to think about how this is going to make money, uh, at some point, but that's not the main focus of what you do. It's more about how are we finding an idea that um, that might even that might work at all, right? Like there's no there's nothing established here. We're sort of going in and we're looking at um, we're 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 just trying to figure out if we can even make a game at all, you know, much less make it highly successful. And then you have this third part, which is, and this is these are the thing that's interesting for me is the mobile and this last one are a huge part of the industry when it comes to leadership which is the person working at a EA or an Ubisoft or an Activision Blizzard who's working on a sequel. And it is far more known. And you know that comparison that we'll say about like making a video game isn't like making chairs, but in some of these places, you know, where if making a chair is de very defined and making a piece of art or music or something like that is very empirical, when we're doing sequel development, it's more on the defined side uh, compared to like, I'm creating a brand new game and a brand new IP and trying to do it in a brand new yeah, like, you genre that I mixed earlier, together. You're like, everything has become more formulaic. There Again, there's been a trend towards everything becoming more formulaic. You know, it's easy to throw- And it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like we want predictability because if I'm going to invest a bunch of money and and I feel like there's a good formula for getting that money back, then that's a win, right? Whereas if I'm like going to invest a bunch of money and you're like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm just going to try some things for a while and hopefully something good comes out the other side. I don't want to give you money, but that might be more true. Um, unless if we're operating in that world of, again, already a proven concept, like a, not to pick on Assassin's Creed, but like we're making Assassin's Creed N plus one. Um, and we already broadly know what players are looking for, what they want. Now it's just about what system well, I mean, do we EA, tweak and all that. Like, there are various versions of that model, right? EA Sports is a big example of that. Oh my gosh, like, yeah, huge. So, but it, again, to me, we there seems to be a desperate need. And again, it makes sense, right? It's a very human characteristic to desperately want to turn something into rinse and repeat because there's a, there's a comfort and a predictability around rinse and repeat. And, and it seems like a lot of the big money in the games industry has become rinse and repeat. What's interesting, though, is like you're starting to see the cracks popping up in that. And you're starting to see that 
those models aren't sustainable long-term. Like actually looking, we've talked about this, like the, you know, everybody was uh, discussing whatever it was last year when the uh, sort of revenue per developer head uh, metrics came out for all the studios and Ubisoft had the, the lowest margins there. And again, of the big studios. And, and again, that makes sense when you think about like, they're just squeezing every drop of remaining value they can out of their existing IPs, right? But there's a question of, and, and this isn't a criticism of those companies again, um, it's it's actually a, a, a uh, recognition of risk in that model long-term is what it is. Um, and and it's, it's sad to see that the biggest entities that are spending the most money and, 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 and essentially undertaking the most risk are the ones that are innovating the least. Um, and that, that feels really weird to me. And that feels like another one of these macro trends. It's like, why does it feel like for the last 10 years now, by the way, it's crazy to me when I talk to product publishing, monetization, marketing people at, from these big studios and they swear that that model is like the only way you can make a really big splash or have a big impact. And, and again, uh, there's a part of this is like a conversation about, okay, what does that mean to you? Um, does that mean like number of users engaged? Does that mean number of total players? Does it mean number or amount of money made? But like, again, when I think about the big like splashes that have uh, ironically resulted in a lot of AAA companies then mimicking that splash, it's always from not, it's not from one of those companies. Like when was the last like genre defining shift that came out of like one of these big AAA studios? Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this content, every two weeks, we're gonna be delivering an actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at www.buildingbettergames.gg forward slash newsletter. Over the last few years, producers have been asking Aaron and I, what's my role? What are the skills I should develop? How do I advance in my career? Game production is in a rough state. We've launched a course to help. It's called Succeeding in Game Production, What You Aren't Taught. Early feedback from our beta tester and early access audience has been overwhelmingly positive. So we're looking to help even more producers. If that's of interest, check it out in the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click course. Thanks, appreciate you listening.